if we don't glean from what's gone on over the last two years as much information as we can we are fools and we will be destined to repeat some of the same damn mistakes that we have made we have hurt people we're clearly seeing now the extent of the collateral damage regarding mental health and i mean especially in elementary and middle school kids who may never recover from the emotional and mental health trauma that they've suffered but massively pro-vaccine zealots in the irish medical system like they're almost unhinged with their pro-zealotry uh, but they know instinctively if this is a case that links to an injury that'll just help anti-vaxxers why would i spend 30 or 40 minutes of my time when i'm busy ultimately helping an anti-vaxxer so it's an easy decision just don't record it and nothing's recorded in ireland did you know that over 900 plus diseases are simply due to nutrition that problems such as heartburn insomnia asthma infertility dementia alzheimer's thyroid disease and so many more can be solved if you just correct your mineral or vitamin deficiencies ControlYourHealth.Care has answers for you for these ailments and so many more that is based on decades of research, including over 26,000 autopsies, 10 million blood chemistries by over 15,000 holistic doctors and scientists. You will see how the right, highly absorbable nutrients that your body is craving will make a huge difference in how you feel. Start now on a journey towards superior health that will literally change your life. For the month of March, we've extended the email only offer to all my listeners. And so you can save up to 20% by using the codes on the screen or the codes below at controlyourhealth.care. Remember, use the codes below and save up to 20% at controlyourhealth.care. You can also find that at sarahwestall.com under shop. Welcome to Business Game Changers. I'm Sarah Westall. We got Ivor Cummings this time. He didn't mess up his uh, his time zone. So we got him back with Dr. Scott Jensen, who's running for the Minnesota governor candidate. And we also have Bobby Bounds, who's a uh, he's an analyst and a reporter. And Ivor Cummings, for the people who don't know him, he's a very well-respected statistician and data analyst and media personality from... Ireland and Scott really wanted to come back because he really wanted to ask questions and be on the call with him and so did Bobby Bounds. I mean, there's so much respect and same with Ivor to Scott, Dr. Jensen. There's so much respect back and forth between all these people. So we, we got this show going again, but this one was pretty hard hitting. We talked about some pretty important topics. And as Dr. Scott says, Dr. Scott Jensen, that we need to have the hard conversations and that in order to not have something like this happen again, we talk about the vaccine passports, the fact that those things more than likely is gonna happen in Europe and they're still rolling it out in the United States and they're quietly doing it in the red states, wanted his opinion on that. And then we also talk about what are these hard questions that he thinks needs to be asked. That's a, that's a pretty sensitive, it's a very controversial area. So I think that you will uh, enjoy this. It's a very important conversation. We also talk about how the Ukraine war, I talked about this at the very beginning, is taking the, the minds and the topics or the talk off of this a very important stuff that we have to do now. And that is to do the, the analysis of what happened with COVID and hold those responsible and clean it up because the damage on society has been too large and that we can't just allow this to go on 
So this is a really important conversation that we have. I hope that you listen to the whole thing. It's really long, but really good. And uh, please share this with others. And hopefully we get these conversations going. And it's not just the, you know, the hard activists or those of us who have been seeing all the data, but all of us, because we've experienced, we've lived this for a couple of years. And we know with the Freedom Convoy going across 30 miles right now, it's growing every day. Um, by the time this airs, hopefully it's, it's twice that size going across the United States because we've been so motivated by the truckers from Canada. And so thank you so much, Canadians. You really motivated the world. I know that Justin Trudeau has put a big foot on your back, but you guys are strong and you'll get back up and you'll keep fighting because that's what your country, your family, and your grandchildren and children need you to do. So before we get into this wonderful panel discussion, go to my website, sarahwestall.com, sign up for my newsletter. And while you're at it, go to the, their uh, websites as well. Support Dr. Scott Jensen in his bid for governor of Minnesota. Go to these other websites, Ivor Cummings, and I'll have links below so that you can uh, visit their, their, inf their websites and their information. And Hi, everyone, to this panel. We have an amazing group of professionals. We have Dr. Scott Jensen, who is running for Minnesota governor. We have Ivor Cummings, who is, uh, everybody respects you as one of the greatest uh, data analysis people on the planet. And then we got Bobby Bounds, who is doing really cutting edge work on disclosing the death certificates and what's really going on with COVID as well. And so I'm so thankful that you all joined today. Great to be here. Thanks, Sarah. And we missed you last week because you had the wrong, um, I do that all the time. I, when you do that, you have the wrong time zone. I've done that with somebody, uh, not all the time. I mean, I'm not that incompetent, but I, uh, I've done it where somebody in Australia, and if you mess up with Australia, I've been sitting there the day before, the day after, and we're like, so it's worse. One hour is not so bad. But anyways, let's dive into this. We have some really important things to talk about. You know, the world has been distracted with the Ukraine war. Like uh, suddenly everything went from COVID and serious freedom issues to 100% Ukraine war in most of the media. And we are seeing very concerning numbers. We just saw out of the UK that nine out of 10 deaths now are coming in that are of the vaccinated, that they're classifying as COVID, but they're vaccinated. Those kinds of numbers are not going to get in front of the public if we're 100% dedicated to other topics. Do you believe that we're going to be able to get the public going to be able to learn what really is going on here and be able to clean this up? I'll go with you, uh, Scott, first. That's a great question, Sarah, and thanks again for having me on. Uh, it's an uh, opportunity for me and an honor uh, to come alongside of you and Ivor and uh, Bobby. To your question, it's a big fear of mine that there are so many lessons we need to learn from what's happened over the last two years. And as a candidate for governor in Minnesota, I get that question a lot. Is there going to be some level of accountability? If there isn't, we have really squandered lives, health, businesses needlessly and learn nothing from them. So I am concerned that we're going to see other political topics used 
to sort of be the headline issues while the numbers change. Just as you mentioned, we heard with great condemnation just literally a couple months ago that this was a pandemic of the unvaccinated. Well, we're seeing data that's dramatically different than that right now. And I think some of that will probably come out in the next few minutes. But if we don't glean from what's gone on over the last two years, as much information as we can, we are fools. And we will be destined to repeat some of the same damn mistakes that we have made. We have hurt people. We're clearly seeing now the extent of the collateral damage regarding mental health. And I mean, especially in elementary and middle school kids who may never recover from the emotional and mental health trauma that they've suffered. But we're seeing so much go on and we're being told that this isn't an appropriate discussion topic. One of the things we need to talk about over the next few months is the QALY or the quality metrics where we start to talk about what is the quality adjusted living years that have been lost? Because I think if you wanna quibble about say a thousand deaths that have been categorized as COVID. Well, if someone says 900 of them were in people who had deeply impactful other comorbidities and someone else says, no, it was only 700. Well, perhaps we could cut to the chase by using metrics that are less easily massaged by the human mind. We can talk about all cause mortality. We can talk about quality, quality years that have been lost, but somehow we cannot let the bureaucrats, politicians, and elected officials who did so many wrong things over the last two years, we can't let them off the hook. They need to be held accountable. Absolutely. Thank you so much for that. And Ivor, you've been doing amazing work at disclosing what the real numbers are. In the United States, we just don't have that quality data, but you've been able to get that in Europe and in certain countries. Can you talk about what the latest numbers are and what obstacles that you've had at getting these numbers? Yeah, thanks, Sarah. And I echo Scott there. Thanks for those kind words. Uh, you know, I saw you really early on and you're an inspiration as one of the people who stood up and of course got a lot of flack for it. Uh, that helped me to stay, stay up there. But yeah, I've been always using like Professor Michael Levitt, excess mortality. And very simply, as the percentage of population, if we expect, you know, a certain number to die in a season of flu, uh, like, I don't know, 100,000, but 103,000 uh, actually die instead, you've got 3,000 extra over what you'd expect. And you divide that by the whole population. And you've got the percentage of the population that's extra. Only measure you can use. The PCR test is nonsense. You know, you can die from something else and have some viral particles, yada, yada. We know this. So on excess mortality in our movie, covidchroniclesmovie.com, you won't get it in Google search, but if you go to that website, you'll get it. And it's going free now, by the way, and free uh, streaming and download. Um, we look mainly at UK, Sweden, and Ireland, because in the movie, you've got to limit down. We've got to make a story. We've got to simplify. So we spent 18 months doing that. But the UK was around, roughly, a thousand extra deaths per million persons, you know, during the major waves. And the second wave, exactly like I predicted, was way lower. In fact, the mortality during the second wave was similar to mortality in 18 and 2015, exactly what we said. But the first one was chunky, around a thousand per million people. That's actually 0.1%. 
that's very small. No disregard for the people who sadly suffered and died. Average age 82, to Scott's point, multiple comorbidities, but still, it's a tough virus. Uh, Sweden then did no lockdown and no masks. And even in May 2020, CNN visited, I have the footage, there are elderly ladies in the footage getting their hair cut. No masks, elderly ladies. And they were asking them, why are you not taking steps? And they went, oh, well, you know, Anders Tegnell, or he says, you know, we just, just be careful, wash your hands, etc." Right. What do they get? In the big first wave, and again, Sweden in the second wave, much lower. Big first wave, around 300 per million persons. And Sweden are an aged demographic, which massively increases your losses from SARS-CoV-2. And yet still, there were 300.03%. You know, Neil Ferguson's models used by Swedish teams were suggesting 12 to 15 times that. Didn't happen. And Ireland then is effectively zero. And the reason is we have a very young demographic. So people in care homes died and elderly with multiple comorbidities. Ireland credited itself for the massive lockdowns, most lockdown in Europe. And they brought in masks everywhere, right? All nonsense. Ireland had no real mathematical impact, maybe a, you know, a small amount, very little. And the reason was we have a young demographic, largely. So it spread everywhere. We had 25% positivity in each season. So it went everywhere. So the lockdown of masks did nothing. It just didn't leave a big death toll. So there you have it. There's three countries. The reason England's worse is aged demographic and dreadful metabolic health. Sweden's aged demographic, but they have pretty good metabolic health, including in their aged, like Japan. And Ireland's a young demographic, medium metabolic health. What a, that's it. And America is higher than UK, but you've got lockdown effects in there. You've got the problems with the American health system even before COVID. And you've got dreadful metabolic health, type 2 diabetes center of the universe. So like America is not too shocking to have pretty substantial excess death. I'm sorry, I'll end there. Okay. Well, can you tell me what's going on with the reports of nine out of 10 COVID deaths are now the vaccinated? Is, is there anything, is there an excess death going on right now? Because insurance I, companies are saying there, there is. Yeah, so any medication that, that can be effective and do something useful uh, can also be a form of poison for a certain percentage of people. It's the nature. If it can biochemically interact to do something powerful and fix a problem, by definition almost, in some people, it can backfire. So there's nothing controversial about this, and this has been known forever, including with vaccines. Uh, how big is the question? Because the VAERS database shows not huge amounts but then we saw in Germany, a guy from the insurance industry just came out and said, guys, we have got true figures and they're huge percentages compared to the official ones. But he was going to go into a meeting with a body that looks at vaccine uh, issues, but he was fired the day before the meeting happened. He was fired. That, that's in mainstream. He was fired for bringing up this subject. So this is where we are. But I think BMJ, or maybe it was the Lancet, indicated what's in VAERS or the databases of side effects, et cetera, death or you know, impacts, uh, is probably 10 to 100 times higher than what's in the database. And anecdotally in Ireland, from my people on the inside of the health system, yeah, that seems 
not a mile off. And the German announcement from the insurance industry guy kind of just tallies. But it's in no one's interest to acknowledge that because it will encourage vaccine hesitancy. So at every point in the medical system, and I know specifically in Ireland, they will not want to fill in a 30-minute report at all costs unless someone comes in, takes the vaccine, and literally explodes in the room, right, and showers the walls. I'm exaggerating. They won't do it. They don't want the paperwork, and they know instinctively because they're all pro-vaccine, massively pro-vaccine zealots in the Irish medical system. Like, they're almost unhinged with their pro-zealotry, but they know instinctively, if this is a case that links to an injury, that'll just help anti-vaxxers. Why would I spend 30 or 40 minutes of my time when I'm busy ultimately helping an anti-vaxxer? So it's an easy decision. Just don't record it. And nothing's recorded in Ireland. It's too bad because it doesn't have to be looked at as anti-vax or not. It just, you should be able to look at a drug and say, or a treatment and say, does this provide benefit more so than the disease itself? If not, then it's a good thing. And there's some you that can. are good. There's some that aren't. So it, we're, we're, uh, they're lumping it all together and that's a problem, but I got to well, tell you, there has been an insurance agency in the United States who also came out with that. They can't fire him because I think he's the CEO. And then Professor Skidmore from Michigan just did a report where he did a survey. And um, now it's not a a huge number. I think he did 3,000 people who had injuries and and different things. And then he's extrapolating it to the whole society and saying, okay, this is either, and it's probably pretty close, or it's a major anomaly. anomaly." And he came up with something like 270 to 300,000 deaths in the United States likely based on his survey. So that kind of stuff is starting to come out. So it'll be really interesting um, because we're having a really hard time getting numbers. But Bobby, you have gotten amazing numbers as far as death certificates. First, I want to say I love your background and you uh, that's your truck, right? Yes. That's awesome. I just want to say that's awesome, especially timely. Uh, can you tell me what you, you've been doing a lot of research. Have you got any pushback or what have you been hearing when it comes to the death certificates and how that relates? And I know, um, Scott, you've been talking to him about it as well, but what have you been hearing about what you've uh, collected? Well, it was crickets when I uh, got a hold of uh, the entire data set for an entire state and was able to analyze it. And I um, started to talk about that to certain people, as well as uh, going on podcasts. And the first, you know, most of 2021, there didn't seem to be, you know, nobody wanted to, you know, nobody wanted to um, address it. And so uh, these two gentlemen, you know, in early 2020, you know, started to, uh, well, uh, Scott, uh, specifically, went on national news and said, hey, I've been, there's a problem here. And, you know, he got, he got national attention, but then they dropped it too, I think. I, I don't know if you would say that, but they gave him the national attention to that subject. And then it just kind of fizzled from my take on it. But, but Sarah, I wanted to, to uh, Ivor said something at the beginning about uh, average age of death. And I want to ask these two gentlemen, uh, as part of your question, 
if the data is flawed in, in whatever country, or specifically in this country, and the deaths are inflated, the way they did that was by inflating the deaths of the elderly for the most part. And so that would skew everything on average age of death. My informal analysis of healthcare workers, they tell me that most of their patients are 55, 50 to 65, pushing 70. And those, and they're metabolically very unwell. I learned that phrase from Iver, by the way. Metabolically unwell. So, so uh, Scott, would you concur or not that what you've seen among your patients, are they younger or have you seen plenty of uh, very elderly people who have succumbed to symptoms from an upper respiratory infection, likely COVID? I probably have a fairly typical scattergram of uh, deaths. I probably have about a thousand patients that have had COVID and perhaps of those, maybe, maybe a couple dozen, maybe a dozen have passed, but almost all of those folks were people who had lived beyond their expected lifespan already. What has been intriguing to me about COVID-19 is that there's a bizarre flukishness to it where Every once in a while, I'll have had a patient who gets very ill, spends five, six weeks in the hospital, sometimes makes it, sometimes doesn't and passes. And it's someone that I wouldn't have expected to have a problem. I think the issue of being medically, excuse me, metabolically unwell is a real thing. Because if you look at type two diabetes uh, with obesity, that's a huge, huge uh, risk factor. But without question, the number of people that I have, I don't know if I've had anybody under the age of 50 pass from COVID who didn't have perhaps dramatic underlying comorbidities. And far and away, the majority of my patients that have passed from COVID, again, you were talking perhaps 10 to 25, would have been people over the age of 80. But I have had some definitely in the 60s and 70s. But I've been struck by the fact that this this virus is unpredictable. And so I absolutely understand why people get nervous about it. I sure do. I guess I guess I'm a I'm, I guess I just want to know what's the average age of death of a legitimate COVID patient. That's what I want to know because I think that's a real problem. The number is a real problem. We have the data in the UK. It was only published again uh, a couple of weeks back. Flurry on Twitter, no main media covered it. Uh, I think it was 82.6 or something with the life expectancy being 81.8. Rough and tough, that's it. Ireland's the same. And you had a backdrop, Bobby, one of my graphs from back in April 2020, which said it all. Like, you know, the average age is in the stratosphere. And Professor Michael Mitlevitt answered this question and he wrote to Imperial College and he wrote to everyone who was basically fraudulent. Papers were coming out saying there was 12 months of life lost. And Levitt showed clearly, clearly, that it was three to four weeks extra risk of death per calendar year in general, regardless of age. So if you're 40, instead of having 12 months of risk in that year, which would be normal, you have 12 months of risk in a 12-month period of dying, obviously very low risk, you actually had 13 months. And it was the same if you're 85. Obviously, you had a vastly higher risk of dying in that 12 months, but it became 13 months worth of risk. 
on average. And he clearly showed that generally it pulled forward debt somewhat and created a spike. And we saw this in Sweden, where it's followed by a trough, and in the UK in 21. But, I mean, what do you say? No one wanted qualies, as, as Scott said. Qualies are the only thing you can possibly discuss in these matters. It's meaningless to discuss debts without qualies. And What's a quali? Oh, quality-adjusted life here. So okay. they use them all over the world. Absolutely established. In England, I think it's 20,000 sterling or $30,000 maybe for a new medication they're willing to spend to save a quality adjusted life here. Now, if they're going to spend that money on a 30 year old uh, who's very healthy and, you know, kids, well, a year saving of that life is pretty much a full year. But a guy who's 83 who's in a wheelchair with dementia, saving a year of that life adjusted for the quality will be tiny, much smaller. If you adjust it, you obviously have to adjust for the life that's going to be lost. Otherwise, it's meaningless. But they want the meaningless measure. No one wanted to talk qualities. No one wanted to acknowledge the age of death is generally above life expectancy. No one wanted to talk about that. Well, because it makes their narrative look bad and they can't spend the money on the bad scenes. I'm going to be just blunt about it. Yeah. But <laughs> well, Sarah, Sarah, if I could jump in. Yeah, I want you. I was going to go to you next. So go ahead. Well, I think what it does when we avoid the discussion of qualities is it allows us to ignore the collateral damage. I mean, there's no yes. rocket science to. If I have three patients at the age of 25 and each one of them commits, suicide because of overwhelming anxiety, depression. And if you think of each one of those having 55 years more of life to get to 80, that's 165 quality adjusted living years. Well, if you have people dying over the age of 82 with multiple comorbidities that from an actuarial perspective have a projected lifespan of 83, then you would have to have 165 people die in order to equal the impact of the, those three young people who committed suicide. I think part of our problem dealing with COVID is that, and, and I think America unfortunately leads the way in cowardice, but we need to have these hard conversations about what does a quality adjusted living year look like? Iver just made a very interesting comment. Are you willing to spend $250,000 for one year for a person who maybe is 45 years old, but is on the cusp of giving us the formula for fusion nuclear power. How does that compare to someone who's 22 and may be the next diabetic specialist who finds a better way to administer insulin? And how does that compare to the 90-year-old who's demented? If we're not willing to have these conversations, then we're not really very serious about learning what we need to learn. Because if you want to just get away from the individual life and say, let's talk about the global health, this is what we should be talking about. But yet, if we're too bold about this, we will get strike one and strike two and strike three on a variety of social media platforms, because this is a bit outside the pale. Well, let me ask you, because you said so, yeah, let me ask you, without us appearing like we're making decisions on whose life is important and not important, how do we approach healthcare? I think it's about giving it back to the doctor 
and and making sure that there's freedom of information, not hiding protocols, and that the best resources are available to them and their family. And we don't we don't make those decisions for people. But what do I mean? This these are hard conversations. You're right. What would you say is the proper way to do that without us making a judgment that somebody's life isn't worth it? You, you know what I'm saying? It's about it's about the conversation. It has to be, Sarah. I mean, if you look at a study that came out maybe 10, 15 years ago, they found that in order to die in Dubuque, Iowa, you would spend fifty thousand dollars in the last year of life, but to die in Manhattan, New York, it would take $250,000. Now, the numbers really aren't that important. What's important is they were cross-referencing this. So you're talking about a 50-year-old or a 75-year-old. But the bottom line is, in some places, you're having five times as many dollars being spent on that last year of life. Is it because the patient is tenacious about holding on to every month of life they can squeeze out of their body? Generally not. Generally, it has more to do with the physician, the healthcare system, the level of, if you will, openness. But when I have my conversations with my 85-year-old patients, they're enjoying life, but they're also very clear with me that they do not want to spend their last two years in a nursing home. They do not want to have machines keeping them alive. They do not want this or that. If we really have the hard conversations, what we're going to find out is our senior citizens are going to be the ones who lead the conversation with courage, thoughtfulness, and common sense. And that comes back to the relationship with the doctor, doesn't it? And having those conversations. And you need a doctor who's kind of old school, who's a realist, who has the right philosophy here. We have a professor in Ireland who's written several books on this problem. And he said, essentially, medicine has gone mad because now medicine seeks to fix everything and it's entirely profit-based, running after wherever the money is. So there's no reasonable judgment. Like you said, Scott, those reasonable older people, that's the way people used to think. But I think now with mass propaganda and censorship, the old people who might have thought that way, I think their brains are addled now, and they're beginning to get really fearful irrationally because they've had a megaphone in their face for over a year. So they've destroyed the critical thinking, all ages, but especially the elderly. But it's, it's crazy. This is an established way of judging cost per quality. It's 20 grand in England. Ireland has a figure too. Most countries have it. We don't talk about it much. They decide if it's 40 grand and you're only going to save one quality for this guy with cystic fibrosis or whatever, it's too high. And they do make a life and death decision, essentially. It, they have to. Now, lockdowns, I was pointing out in April 2020, just from the early data from Woods Hole Institute and even crediting lockdown with some effect, which it turned out it didn't really have any, right, anywhere in the world, but even crediting it a little, the cost per quality adjusted life you're saved, if you allowed that lockdown was saving a certain proportion and you were generous, was a half a million dollars or a million dollars. Best case. So why would a country like England that allows 20 grand per quality decide a half a million or a million is, is fine? And the reason is Neil Ferguson in Imperial College that unfortunately has got $300 million from Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation over the last eight years. And his team of modelers using 20 year old, you know, Fortran models 
somehow have come up like they always do with ridiculously high estimates of impact. And they tipped the whole country into madness. So anyway, sorry, I'll stop. No, I think you're right with the madness part. I just, I, I do, I really like Scott's um, point that the elderly have, if they haven't been brainwashed, have a different perspective. They don't want to live a certain way. So you really got to listen to them. And they're almost being forced to do something they maybe don't want to do. But I want to move on to a different topic. I want to work, talk about the vaccine passports. And uh, many states have this art in the United States. I know England and, and uh, countries in Europe are, are the same, have the vaccine passports initiated. The red states are quietly doing it, not making big fanfare, but a lot of them, the Forbes just put out an article about this, that a lot of them are moving forward quietly, claiming it's a freedom of, of healthcare. It's a freedom issue because they have right to see what their vaccine status is, which is, I think is ridiculous. So it seems like even though the COVID narrative has fallen apart, behind the scenes, they're hardcore still going after these vaccine passports, even though we know they don't work. And the data coming out of England and other places are showing that the majority of the people dying now of COVID are the ones that have been vaccinated. Who wants to take this one on first? I'll let anybody jump on this one. I'll, I'll try and be brief. Uh, the passports from the get-go were nonsense. I mean, from the earliest possible data, it was clear emerging from Israel that the percentages of unvaccinated and vaccinated across all age ranges, there was no difference in levels of infection. So whatever about mitigating death or symptoms, and I think there's a massive question around that, they all say, oh, well, okay, it doesn't affect spread. That was clear from the earliest possible data from the leading country, Israel, and it was validated and verified all over the world. Um, but it didn't change anything with the rollout of passports. The only possible reason for passports was spread, reduction of spread. And it was clear that it didn't do that. And it didn't change the strategy at all. So you knew it was corrupt. I said to people in the summer of 2020, it dawned on me late in 2020, this is before the vaccine came, from our interviews with Professor Bida Stadler, the Fauci of Europe, the immunologist, you know, emeritus professor, he explained all this. And he said, basically, because the vaccine is only focusing on the spike and not the nucleocapsid and the whole virus, it's going to have very limited effectiveness, but hell. And, you know, transmission is hard to see it having any notable effect. Um, so I basically was saying back then, I didn't want to sound like a conspiracy terrorist, but I said, guys, it's clear they want the ID cards and they want the passport infrastructure. It just became clear as day that it didn't matter if the vaccine did absolutely nothing. It was irrelevant. They wanted the infrastructure of ID cards, biometric, and they've wanted it for decades. I mean, Tony Blair in the UK with his foundation 15 years ago under cover of the Iraq war, which we know was utterly corrupt, right? Tried to get ID cards brought in. But this time they had an excuse, a once in a century pandemic. So they, use, they want the infrastructure. And I think they've dumped them now in Ireland, dumped them in England, dumped them in Sweden. Everything's been dumped across most of Europe except for the countries run by World Economic Forum kind of puppets like France and, and Canada, et cetera. But most of Europe dumped everything, including passports. And you'd say, but how did they dump the goal? And the reason is they've got their foot in the door. The infrastructure was imposed. They have everything lined up. And I figure they can circle back later, you know, and bring home the bacon. But maybe right now, don't push it. 
Well, in the United States, they haven't even backed down and people are going forward. Minnesota is one of those states. So Scott, what do you think? Since you're running for governor of Minnesota, what do you think? Because we, they've, they haven't implemented here. I think we have to look at the question of vaccine passports, perhaps from two angles. And I think Ivor just gave us the one, the one that's, if you will, data and scientifically driven in terms of does it do what it's supposed to do? Does it decrease transmission? Does it do this, this, and this? And it doesn't. Now, so from that perspective, I would agree with Ivor. You could say it, it makes no sense based on what it was projected to do and what it does do. But I think there's another angle, and I think it's actually more powerful. And I think it's, it's the moral issue. And to me, a vaccine passport is immoral because what it does is it takes first, it takes your concept of health privacy and throws it out the window, just throws it out the window. If you're gonna do that this time around, and if you happen to believe that gonorrhea can be spread on a toilet seat, then don't you have the right to ask the person who comes out of the public restroom just before you, if they have gonorrhea? <laughs> I mean, if we're, going, if we're going to do that, we're saying health privacy doesn't matter. Yep. And the other moral issue that comes to play is if we say informed consent is the holy grail, informed consent is not inflicted coercion, it's informed consent. And we're not providing informed consent. We've thrown it out the window. We've said we get to inflict the type of coercion at you that we think will make you do what we want. We won't call it a mandate. It may be a de facto mandate. You may not be able to have a job to pay your bills. You may go destitute. You may lose your house. You may not even be able to feed your children. To me, the moral issue of a vaccine passport is the far greater problem. It's immoral because I do get to have health privacy and I do get to have informed consent. And when you tell me that I don't, you're immoral. Now, if you have an Ebola pandemic, you still don't get to have a mandate. You tell me that if I get Ebola, that I have a 50, 60 plus percent chance of dying. You tell me that you have a vaccine that will bring that down to zero and that I will be able to be with my loved ones. You show me the data from VAERS and other programs around the country, excuse me, around the world, because these kinds of monitoring adverse events from vaccines are not just in the US and the CDC. United Kingdom and European countries have very robust databases on this. But if you want me to say yes to an Ebola virus outbreak, all you have to do is tell me the risk, tell me what I will get from it, have it be reliable, and, and tell me what the side effects are. And I am convinced that unless someone is mentally ill or mentally deficient, they will make the kind of decision that public health officials would want. But in this situation, we're taking a respiratory virus that behaves very much like influenza. We're telling you we're gonna strip you of your health privacy. We're gonna strip you of informed consent. We're going to not allow you to see the reality of what's happening in terms of adverse events. We're going to do it by fear mongering and telling you that 
half of these cases are spread through asymptomatic transmission. You can't see it, smell it, hear it, or know it. When that has been debunked, and you want us to buy into what you're selling, this is not on the people who are saying no thank you to the vaccine. This is on the public health officials who have done an unbelievably terrible job of working with everyday members of this planet. Well, that's excellent because if there was an Ebola outbreak and let's say it's contagion is like 60% of the people will get it and 60% of the people will die and they have a vaccine where 1% will die taking the vaccine, everyone with the brain would line up to get that vaccine, even though people could die from it. And that is what we're trying to say is that's why freedom of speech and making sure people can see the facts and the truth. I love what you just said. I think that's important. But then what do we do? Now we have these vaccine passports. What do we do? We, we every Congress, every state Congress and every legislature around the world says, strikes it down and says, this is illegal. Sarah, Sarah, to chime in for a moment, uh, regarding a couple of things that were talked about. Sarah, a question to you, and then uh, these two can chime in on this. If, let's, Sarah, let's say you're a public health official and your job is to report weekly, daily, weekly numbers of a, of a disease of some kind or another or infection rates. And the question I have is about modeling. And Ivor mentioned the infamous modeler earlier, uh, and that got me thinking about this. So Sarah, you are in charge of reporting daily COVID cases, and your team has developed a model that you think that the cases are naturally going to be underreported, so your modeling team decides to multiply the cases by three or four. On a daily basis, they change anywhere from 200 to 400%. And the, so, so say there's 10,000 positive cases on a Tuesday and, and the, the modelers decide for that day, it's gonna, the multiplier is gonna be three. So on the nightly news, they don't report 10,000 cases, they report 30,000 cases. So that's my question. And they don't disclose that that's what they've done. You have to be somebody like me that knows what they're doing or look on their website and you can, this is the state of New Mexico did this. They call it a PCM, a positive case multiplier. And they've, they've done it since the beginning. And this is true, Ivor. I have confirmation from their supervisor. This is what they do. They, they double, triple or quadruple the number to stoke the fear. Well, so I guess, uh, Sarah, that I'm asking you, could you, could you do that with a straight face? Could you do that every day? I, the ethical thing to do when you're talking to the public is tell them what the, the number is. Tell them what you think the multiplier is and have both numbers in front of you. The moment you realize that the tests are BS, you need to come forward with that as well. Because if you're um, honest and you're reporting uh, with integrity, you can't withhold information from the public. Not like that, because it's too important. That's my I, perspective, but I think a lot of people died because of the way they reported. 
And I think history is proving out that, that I'm right. So that's, yeah. that's the ethical way of doing it, in my opinion. I don't and, think there's anything wrong with multiplying it um, and having another thing and saying, this is likely what it is, because that's maybe a realistic thing. But once you realize the base tests are, are, are faulty, then you need to come out really quick with changing that. Does anybody disagree with me? I mean, or have another opinion? Yeah, I, I just said that this, you could put it down to stupidity, et cetera, but no, in retrospect, overwhelmingly, people say never put down to evil or whatever that you can attribute to stupidity, you know? And it's just say, don't be careful now when someone does really stupid stuff that hurts a lot of people, just be careful jumping to say they're evil. In this case, after two years though, it's so far beyond stupidity on so many key vectors of this. Seasonality, lockdown effectiveness, mask effectiveness, vaccine effectiveness, yada, yada, yada. Like, I'll give you an example. The WHO, right in the summer of 2020, when I'd been screaming about seasonality for two months and mainstream were beginning to acknowledge, oh, you know, it collapsed in the summer like the flu. And, oh, look, all the coronaviruses have always done this in Europe. Just when that began to get talked about, you know what the WHO did? They came out with a bulletin and it was in all the media. You know what the bulletin was? SARS-CoV-2 is not seasonal. They actually came out with an announcement that it was not seasonal right when people were beginning to realize and acknowledge it was seasonal. That's not stupidity. Right. And there's a million examples of that. So and just one thing else. The protocols in the hospital isn't stupidity either. Would you agree with that? No. The WHO sealed our fate right at the start. If there's a smell of SARS-CoV-2 in the same building as someone who has the problem, you test the hell out of them and you make sure you put them down as a COVID case. You could have done that for epidemiological data that would be held just by epidemiological teams, never made public but you should have made public the people who died demonstrably or powerfully from the disease. And that figure would be 10 times smaller, but they didn't do that. In fact, they exaggerated and hyped what Bobby just said. They took the nonsense measure and they further hyped it. It's insane. But on the vaccine, one quick comment on the vaccine, I'll give you a link after to Professor Fenton from the UK, who has showed why apparently the vaccine shows a great mortality benefit. And you need to watch the video, but it's essentially kind of a mathematical trick. And the reason that after a few months of each shot wave, you don't see any benefit anymore, like 90, 10 or 90% is because the mathematical thing is temporary. During the rollout to each age group, you get a hump in the unvaccinated of mortality. That's an artifact. And they look way worse off, but it, it can't sustain and it passes away. So that's why after a few months, you don't see any benefit from the vaccine. And they say, oh, it's because it waned. Not really. It's because it's a mathematical trick, you know? And if you just think about it, and this is stunning to me, Pfizer did an RCT, which is the gold standard, which actually tells you whether something works or not. The mask RCT said masks don't work. We know that. We see it in real life. But Pfizer claimed 95% reduction in cases. Remember this. 95% reduction in cases. But in real world, turned out, no reduction in cases. Now, the only way real world can conflict utterly with an RCT is if their RCT was fraudulent or done incorrectly. 
in real world we saw from Israel. So how did an RCT show something that in real world just didn't happen? How, how could you do that? I don't know how they did it, but they did it some way. <laughs> okay, we know the answers to all this. And so the yeah. elephant in the room is that a lot of this was planned. There's a lot of ignorance and stupidity of, stupidity of the people following it, but not everyone was stupid on this front because they had things planned beforehand. But got to ask you, Scott, because I didn't, you didn't get to answer my question because we kind of got sidetracked. What do we do now that we have these vaccine passports? What is the right thing for our legislatures to do to make sure the ethical situation occurs and that we don't take away people's right of um, medical freedom and secrecy and the, the right to choose? We need to do exactly what Dr. Benjamin Rush said in the 1770s when he advocated for an amendment to the Constitution, a health freedom amendment. And it would be great to do it federally, but certainly states should do it. We should have a health freedom amendment that allows a clear determination of what we as citizens are absolutely guaranteed of. And that would be informed consent. It would be the, the capability of doing a, a conscientious objection, a religious exact exemption, and we, we have to do that in within that health freedom amendment, we have to have a vaccine bill of rights. Uh, Dr. Uh, Benjamin Rush said this in the 1770s, but 200 years later, we had Dwight Eisenhower saying farewell to the United States in 1961. And he said in his farewell address that there may come a day where public policy is held captive by a scientific and technological elite. And I think we're seeing that with the technological social media platforms, et cetera. But we're also seeing it with this scientific elite where someone might disparage Ivor Cummings' opinion because he's not a vaccinologist or he's not Tony Fauci or he's not someone else. And what we've seen, we've seen the data and the data analysis corrupted over and over again. We have to scream at the top of our lungs that we have to have our health freedom secured once and for all everywhere. Because if we don't have health freedom, arguably you don't have any of the other freedoms either. And we need to make sure people understand that health freedom isn't a gift from an elected official or someone in the legislature. Health freedom is a gift from our creator in the same way that life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness is. So. Yeah. We need to be so forceful on this. This is probably the most critical thing that if I could accomplish as governor of Minnesota, th this would be it because everything else flows from it. Yeah. Well, what do you think, and, you Bobby? Know, you oh, go ahead, Ivor. You want to speak? Go ahead. Oh, no, I was just going to say, I've been using the words, guy, inalienable rights. They are not privileges. They can never be given to you by any human or set of humans. They are inalienable. They are fundamental. You're entitled whether you take a medication or a drug. It's so fundamental that if you break it, I agree entirely. If you break that one, we're on the slippery road to corporate dystopia. It sounds dramatic, but once you pull that brick out of the wall, the rest of the wall is ready to be knocked down over the coming decades. And we're kind of already there, right? I mean, we watched it in horror over the last couple of years. But Bobby, that gets me to the Freedom Convoy and the fact that you have a truck behind you. Um, we have a Freedom Convoy going through the United States. The Canadians kind of was a light 
for the world to see. And unfortunately, we saw horrifying tyrant behavior from Justin Trudeau. Uh, it was incredible watching what was going on there from him. It was inspiring watching the people and then watching that was horrifying. But now we have one going on in the United States. First of all, are you going to join them since you have a truck and you could? And what do you think about what they're doing? Okay. The Canadian situation was like nothing in history, really. And what you have are the masses, the people, the public that are downtrodden and pushed down and demoralized and beat up. And the average person that goes to work nine to five, they are mostly powerless. That's why people like Scott, Dr. Scott Jensen and Ivor Cummins and Sarah Westall, and to a lesser extent, my efforts as a, just a citizen activist, these people look to us for strength. And the, the semi-truck is a symbol of power and strength. And that's what galvanized the Canadian protest against the vax mandates, the average person can relate to the strength and power of a big machine that's independently operated by a person that's determined to right a wrong that's in the system. And it's, it's bigger than life. You know, a semi truck, you know, if you don't drive one for a living, it's, it's something that, you know, the government can't ignore. <laughs> you know, very easily. So uh, it's, a, it's, it's an amazing thing. Now, the American uh, convoy is, as you know, it's on its way. I've had a little bit to do and in, involved with people organizing that. And they are determined patriots. They don't have an understanding of the minutia of, of uh, what's going on, like, like maybe we do a little bit more. But uh, they they know deep down in their soul that that tyranny is a bitch, and they don't they don't want anything to do with it. They want to live free, as free as we've been, you know. And um, I think the current trucker convoy phenomenon is just the beginning of things that we're going to see in the coming year or two. That's all going to be looked back upon in the past and say this, you know, this all started with this, these truckers. And I'm sorry for rambling. Well, yeah, that was pretty amazing. I heard last night that the it's a 30 mile convoy at this point and they keep picking up people, which is just great. We only have a few minutes left here. So I want to give each of you. Um, well, I hope that's okay, Bobby. That's your end because that's like that was fantastic and perfect. Um, Ivor, do you have something that you want to uh, say to and this like a minute here. Okay, 60 seconds. I'll throw out a couple more examples. There's myriad examples of how this whole thing, like I said, they were wrong on every primary vector and maintain the incorrectness. But give an example, in summer 2020 in Europe, it was clearly seasonal. WHO came out and said it's not, right? That's clearly fraudulent. But they brought out mandatory masks with prison sentences and fines. To an earlier point, why didn't they just advise them? Why would you advise them? It had seasonally collapsed and clearly nothing was going to happen till the following October or November. That was clear as day. 
and they brought in mandatory masks, but simultaneously brought in fines and prison sentences to drive them in, in the middle of the summer in Europe. And that's when I knew we were in serious trouble and it wasn't stupidity because that is the single most unscientific thing I've possibly seen in my lifetime. And the terrible thing was the people wore them. They actually went out, said, oh, there's a fine, oh, prison sentence, granny save. They wore them in their masks. So, you know, that's, that's the thing. And one, one very last thing, my a relation of mine, who's non-technical, rang me in April, and he doesn't ring me much. And he asked me, Ivor, is this all kind of bullshit, this lockdown and everything? And I said, how do you know? Are you, are you watching my podcast? And he said, no, because I knew he didn't. He worked it out. He had noticed no one in the stores and they were not locked down. They were the opposite. All across Ireland, there were eight hours a day with no masks in an inside building with all the great unwashed flowing in and out doing their, their shopping. The staff, he noticed, and he began to ask them, even the older obese ones, didn't matter. There was no signal for sickness, mortality or cases. And he realized then the lockdown has to be a sham. And it was. Scott, will you finish us out? Sure. I think that, again, one of the things that's going to haunt all of us is the idea that we could move past COVID-19 pandemic without learning what we need to learn. So for me, I use the word or the, the two words, long meeting, because there have been a lot of long meetings about COVID. That's the two words I use in my head to tick off the things that we need to talk about as we go forward and try to learn. So let me just jump into long meeting. The lockdowns didn't work. One size fits all was an absolutely flawed approach to it. We saw it all over the world. The nursing home policies were absolutely despicable, horrific, and would be a part of our lasting legacy that we caused fragile elderly people to live alone, isolated and locked in and locked down. The G stands for the goalposts were moved. In Minnesota and in so many places, everybody wanted to do their part. And in that first couple of weeks where we were told we needed to flatten the curve and not overwhelm the healthcare facilities, we said, okay. But it was so quick that we learned that this was politically motivated and it wasn't about real good policy. That's the word long. The word meeting, you have to talk about masks and mandates. And you have to talk about flawed models. The models have to be transparent. We didn't have really an epidemic of death like we were told we were going to have. We had an epidemic of fear that was fueled daily by conventional media. And the second E stands for emergency powers. These were abused like never before. The T stands for transparency was thrown out the window. It was cloak and dagger. Look at what happened in Australia and New Zealand. The I stands for immunity. Basic concepts of immunity were bastardized and thrown out the window and shaped and reshaped in a way that would allow someone to use it and recruit it to their narrative. The N stands for natural immunity, which is not a religion. It's a biologic phenomenon that we've known for decades. And this was tossed out the window. And the G stands for groupthink. We have seen so many people fall prey to groupthink. Leaders surrounded themselves with people who would say, yes, sir, yes, ma'am, you're brilliant. And so we had the dumbest things said around the world, perhaps at an Illinois public health conference, press conference, where this woman said, 
just because it says on the death certificate that you died of COVID doesn't mean that you died of COVID. You can't make this kind of thing up. We have traveled the last 24 months as if we are mental midgets instead of being the, the highest cognitive species on the earth. And for that, we should be ashamed. We should be. Okay, where should people go to support your campaign? DrScottJensen.com, D-R-S-C-O-T-T-J-E-N-S-E-N.com. I want to be as transparent as I can. I'm wrong sometimes, I'm right sometimes, but I'm always most interested. If I can ask the right questions, then I think we can find answers. But if I'm going to pontificate and bore you with my know-it-all attitude, we're not going to get anywhere. And that's how we're going to get through this, is you look to someone like Ivor Cummins, who will put information out in front of you and poke and prod you to ask the questions so that you can engage yourself, think to the highest level that you can think, you can get to where we need to be. Thank you so much. Ivor, we didn't get where people could follow you. Yeah, I think if you just search engine my name, Ivor Cummins, you'll hit the YouTube and Twitter, which is probably my main things. But the other thing is www.covidchroniclesmovie.com, all one word. We're on page 50 of the search engine, obviously, and we've been censored across many platforms. But we're now going into free streaming, and basically you can download the whole movie. We spent 18 months, a lot of work, a lot of experts around the world interviewed, etc. It's the mainstream type movie story format for people who are on the, you know, in the middle rather than hardcore anti-corona. Um, but it's going to be zero cent, basically, or contribution. So we're going to completely, we just need to get it out there now everywhere. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. You guys are excellent. Keep being the courage, keep being the leader that people need you to be and giving people that spark of light and hope because people really need that right now. And so I thank you, all of you, so much for doing what you do. Thank you. Bobby, thank you, great. Thank you so much. No, thank you, Scott. You know, it was fantastic meeting you and, and Bobby and Sarah as well. I would have been less familiar, but uh, Scott, I always remember your face speaking reason right at the start of this thing. I mean, right at the start, that's something to be massively proud of and to take the blows. Leadership hurts. You got to take the blows. God knows you know that. Yeah. Thank you.